0: Welcome to Takeaway Science, another in the series of short podcasts produced by Blast at The Open University. As ever, we've three short sequences for you, all on some aspect of science. Later on, Blast's David Smith talks with herpetologist Rhys Jones from Cardiff University about snakes. After that, Blast project manager Emily Unell catches up with Jenny Worthington, project officer for The Open University's Evolution Mega Lab, to talk about snails. But first, we hear from Dr David Robinson, Senior Lecturer in Biological Sciences at the OU and erstwhile head of the university's Open Broadcast Unit, about Open University Broadcasting and OU science programmes on TV and radio. Asking the questions, it's Emily Unell.
1: I think we all remember the programmes that the Open University used to make, with the BBC, the teaching programmes um, that we're famous for that were on at five in the morning. But now we're involved with very different, much more popular programmes, I would say, like Coast, for example. Um, Can you explain a little bit about how that change was brought about?
2: Um, Yes, and people remember the, the earlier broadcasts very well, and they know about the present broadcasts. What they tend not to remember is the a period when we were gradually changing, because we used to make programmes just for the courses, um, and they were directed particularly at the students for that course, but the drop-in audience found them very entertaining. Uh, And then science took the lead in making a change, and we started producing programmes which were for our science students, not necessarily particular course students. And we even had um, our own slot called Science Night, was like having our own channel, even though it was only uh, generally an hour and a half long. And they were very successful because they appealed to a wider science audience. And at the same time, the university was saying, well, it's actually easier to get visual and audiovisual material to students if we put it on a CD and bung it in with the um, stuff we're posting anyway. There's no postage costs. That's a better way to get things to people than transmission on air. But of course transmission on air was bringing us in these very large drop-in audiences. Didn't want to lose that. So we shifted to working with the BBC on um, either series that we commissioned and totally paid for uh, or more often now series where we're co-producers and where we think that the series really will reach that same science audience that we used to specifically target with our own programming.
1: So the commissioning process itself... How does it work? Who comes up
2: with the ideas? There are really two routes for ideas. One is that someone in the university has an idea for a programme and they approach um, people in the BBC to see if it can be worked up into a formal proposal. Alternatively, the BBC will come to the university with a proposal that they think fits the university's brief. And that may be modified and worked up with um, academics in the university. Whatever the idea comes from, It will eventually end up as a formal document that is pitched to a university grouping and that university group will decide firstly whether uh, the programme meets the university brief, secondly whether um, we can have add-ons, things that go round it and thirdly whether we can afford it. But I think the important one is whether we can make more of it than just a TV programme because TV is very ephemeral and you don't just want to put a lot of money into a TV programme and not do anything around it. So it's really the package that is the key thing, I think, uh, now in commissioning good ideas. With the web, uh, the events, the booklets, lectures, and so on, that go with it and make it much more than a TV programme, make it a TV event.
1: As we all know, broadcasting is changing at an amazingly rapid speed. Mm-hmm. And what we now have you on know, mm-hmm. the main channels It's going to be very different. I think everyone's agreed on that in the future. So how is the OU responding to that sort of change? I think the
2: OU is working out how best to respond to the change. We don't really know whether people are going to go on making what's called an appointment to view. That is, they look something up in the radio times on the web and they say, that programme's going to be transmitted at nine o'clock. I will make sure that I'm sitting in front of the television to watch it. In some ways, that is still quite a good way to receive television. There are people who want to view it when they want to view it. I have the feeling that we're still going to be attracted to sitting down and watching television on transmission. Everybody said the cinema would disappear and it doesn't. It hasn't. So there will always be, I think, an audience for that big TV in the corner but there will also be a substantial demand for viewing segments of programmes, uh, for viewing them online, for viewing them offline, on portable devices, where people can watch whenever they like.
1: I understand that you've been involved with lots of different programmes. Which Mm. has been your favourite?
2: That's very difficult because I've enjoyed um, so many programmes. Um, But of the television programmes, I think the first series of Coast and the most recent Alan Titchmarsh series Nature of Britain have been the ones that possibly that I've enjoyed the most. Um, But I also get a lot of pleasure out of radio. Um, I haven't... Done much radio recently? I used to do a lot more, and I think that is still a very, very good medium for um, reaching people. And radio remains very popular. It wasn't replaced by television, so um, yeah, I enjoy that as well.
1: And um, finally, what's coming up in the yeah, OU's schedules in the next six months? You know, what are we involved with?
2: We are heavily involved with Darwin Year, and we're involved in um, both the um, events that surround Darwin the television programmes, uh, and possibly some radio as well. So I think much of the programming that you'll see in the science area will be concerned with Darwin um, for the next year or so, in one way or another.
0: Blast Project Manager Emily Younell talking there with Dr David Robinson. Anyone with an interest in how and why we communicate science will benefit from the OU's postgraduate science course called Communicating Science in the Information Age, a component course for the OU's taught Master's MSc in Science. Using a mixture of case studies and articles, the course considers how science is communicated in different settings through a range of traditional and new media and what frameworks and methods have been proposed for researching these communications. Communicating science in the information age explores how scientists communicate with each other, and it looks at the role of public engagement activities, science centers and museums, print media and digital television and radio in presenting science to a wider public. To learn more about this course, log on to ww3 that's the numeral three, ww3.open.ac.uk/study. Click on the link to Science on the right-hand side of the page and then the link to Postgraduate Courses and Qualifications in Science at the foot of the page. You'll then find the course details you want under Taught Master's MSc in Science. And now, as promised, here's Blast's David Smith talking matters herpetological with Cardiff University's Rhys-Jones.
3: Well, I look at an abundance of different uh, aspects of of snake biology and snake genetics and and the phylogeography. Phylogeography is um, just assigning genetic code to geographical locations for you, and it helps me to understand how they survived Ice Age events and the migration routes they took to northern Europe, avoiding uh, what mountains they avoided, what rivers they avoided, uh, or or could have acted as barriers to their migration. But I'm also interested in... um, the parasitology of these animals, for instance, when we move these animals around or we translocate these animals, one thing which isn't taken into account is the parasite load of these animals, and that's a a paper which I have coming out very, very soon now, uh, looking at um, how these animals uh, can possibly, you know, what happens when they interact when one is carrying a huge burden of parasites and, and one is practically absent of parasites. And the last aspect of my work is looking at non-invasive ways of sampling these animals. So currently a lot of people will take blood samples on tail snips etc which I found incredibly cruel. So I've looked at new ways of amplifying it from the shed skin and especially from faecal matter. Uh, Obviously all of these things are naturally expelled by snakes and uh, so why not utilise them? Why not use them to be able to obtain genetic code? Probably the thing has changed the most for me is that we seem to have gone away from any taxonomic aspect of snakes. We seem to have just completely delved into the genetics of snakes. And, I've, you know, I, I would say at the risk of probably putting all your eggs in one basket, um, I know now that, you know, that you've got plenty of people that can tell you all about, you know, cytochrome B and this aspect and that aspect of the genetics of the animal but uh, they probably wouldn't recognize the animal they're studying if it was you know asleep in front of them because taxonomically and systematically they're not very good at identifying these animals now. All right and um, what would you say is your favorite snake? Oh now you're asking. I've got I've got a few favorite snakes um ones that I actually keep myself So I do a lot of rescuing of these animals As you're probably aware people buy them at a two foot and 15 foot later they're dumping them in the wild and then somebody's got to go in and rescue our native wildlife so out of the animals that i have i've got a, a beautiful australian carpet python aussie and he's probably the favorite snake that i've got absolutely love him but around the world i've got different snakes that i admire for different reasons um, one of which is Echis, uh, which is a, um, a snake which we find it's a viper the saw scale viper which you find all through uh uh, Northern Kenya, Tanzania All the way through to the Middle East And it's just because it's so uh, So vicious and adaptable It's just not at all bothered by people It uh, will just inhabit anywhere It's a really, really powerful little viper Some of our listeners are interested in snakes Would it be the best place to go and observe them Either in captivity Or actually if they can go and see them in the wild? Well, there's two things I think we've got, to, we've got to look at that question. It's an interesting question, but we've got to look at it in two ways. Um, number one is that it will be easier for you to see snakes, depending on the species, within uh, a zoological environment, uh, obviously, because they're, they're very cryptic in their environment. They're difficult to see. Um, but there are certain ways, I mean, if you get in touch with local um, wildlife groups or, or, or even with people like myself, you know, if you can find a herpetologist that will take you out into the field... And you can view these animals, but with native animals, as I said, they're highly cryptic, they're very shy, and so you don't want to disturb them. So if you're going out to see these animals, please remember they are wild animals. Don't try and pick them up, don't try and interrupt their their natural day-to-day habits. Stay away, look, uh, be very grateful that you've seen them, it's a very special event for you, but do not interrupt their natural life cycle.
0: David Smith, talking there with herpetologist Rhys Jones. Now, are you interested in studying science but wonder whether distance learning is right for you? Are you worried that your maths might let you down? Did you miss out on science in school? Well, if the answer to any of these questions is yes, then you could do worse than register for the Open University short course called Science Starts Here. It's an introductory course designed specifically for those students who've done little or no science in the past and whose maths is rusty or even non-existent. Taking the course will give you an ideal chance to find out whether further OU study is right for you because it's a 10-point course that runs over a fixed 10-week period so you can put your toe in the bathwater without committing yourself too much. The Science Starts Here explores the role that water plays in sustaining life, from the journey of a glass of water through the body to the effects of pollution. It also provides a gentle introduction to the basic maths and scientific vocabulary needed for S104, the OU's 60-point interdisciplinary science course at Level 1. If you want to find out more about this or any other OU science course, log on to wwww 3 .open.ac.uk/study click on the link to science on the right hand side of the page and follow the appropriate link under where to start in science and so to the final sequence of this takeaway science podcast in which blast project manager emily Unell chats to jenny worthington about the open university's involvement in the forthcoming evolution megalab a mass experiment for Year in 2009. As you'll hear, the OU is hoping to recruit thousands of members of the public to hunt for sapia snails, to help its biologists work out the effects of climate change on the evolution of the snails. Over to you, M.
4: We're asking members of the public to go in, into their local gardens and public areas, anywhere where there's you know green space and hunt for snails. So that's pretty much it. I look for a particular species called *Sapia*, which is a banded snail mm-hmm. and it comes in two varieties, one with a brown lip to the shell and one with a light white lip to the shell and I'll we'll ask people to go out and look for those and record what they find and what colours they come in and what banding patterns they come in and then go onto an internet site and enter all their data online It's really easy to do. It's really cool because *Sapia* is quite a well-studied um, Species, so we've got um, historic populations from earlier this century, so we can compare the results from this, from the current set, with the past set, and you can see if any evolutionary changes have occurred. So people will get real-time feedback over what's happened between then and now. So, um, why is the OU getting involved with this project? Well, it's to do with the Darwin 200, and there's lots of celebrations going on around that, and obviously Darwin theory, of evolution you know survival of the fittest everything like that because obviously changes in um, bird thrush populations and climate change whether this affects the morphology of the snail and how it looks obviously there's a big like research angle to do there and citizenship science and getting the public involved in science and you know sparking their interest.
1: Is it hard to find those little snails in, in the garden?
4: Well, not really. You've probably seen them out <laughs> in your garden quite okay. <laughs> regularly, you know. Whenever it's, if you, find, if you find snails, you're most likely to find these banded snails mm-hmm. appear. And especially after it's been raining, they'll be out in your garden.
1: Oh, okay. So uh, actually, this summer is a perfect time yes. to get and find them. There's
4: loads of them on the <laughs> packs. absolutely millions. I gather that you're doing it in the UK, but also across Europe. The whole, well, not the whole of Europe, but I think about 10 countries involved so far. Wow. And um, they're all taking part. So we're going to have a data set from all over Europe. And um, the, the website has been translated into all the different languages that are taking part, mm-hmm. which is quite exciting. And all the um, downloadable documents are being translated as well. So people will be able to take part in their own language and be able to you know, fully participate.
1: So these snails must spread quite a long way.
4: Yeah I think the northern limit I think is like south Sweden but you obviously we don't know how because obviously it gets colder. I think they are confined to Europe they're not found in America but there are yeah they've got a quite wide ranging
1: I mean have have any predictions been made about what they think they're going to find from the snails?
4: Well I think they think obviously the the song thrush decline that therefore there may be more with, with things like climate
1: change, do they affect snails and snail populations?
4: I think it's the more the, what I can gather, the morphology of, you know, how the snail looks. And you know, like the the peppered moth survey from the Industrial Revolution sooted all the trees, so they hypothesised that therefore the moths, moths went to a darker colour, because it camouflaged them more. Yeah. And it's probably similar, similar with the snails, that obviously, you know, with changes in the environment you know therefore will the darker shells darker colored snails be more prevalent than lighter ones and vice versa depending on the environment mm.
1: and also for darwin 200 there's a whole load of stuff going on isn't there um but the ou's got some plans in particular can you tell me a little bit about those yeah we've
4: got the there's the short course darwin evolution course or the mm-hmm. evolution course and then there's the evolution Medical lab, and there's also a yeah, the, the OU are setting up like a little miniature Darwin microsite where it links to all the the Evolution Short Course, the Evolution Mega Lab, and then this this Darwin microsite is quite cool because it's got like a little you upload a picture of yourself and you can devolve it back oh, over really? the, like hundreds of thousands oh, of look, years. That's amazing. To see what you look like as a you know ten thousand years ago as, as
1: a Neanderthal. Yeah,
4: yeah, brilliant. That's quite. It's quite. I think that should be ready in October. The right. marketing team are all doing that, so that's quite exciting. Yeah, And that I've linked to all the Darwin 200, you know, activities as well, so it should be quite exciting.
1: Why why should people go out and look for snails? What's in it for them?
4: They get to learn a bit about science and to realise it's not that scary to go out into their, you know, environment. They can be a scientist for the day and, you know, maybe it'll evoke their learning to go and bring confidence to do more, learn more about, you know, their local environment and... Mm. Maybe even meet people as well with similar interests.
1: When, when does your website go live? It launches
4: April 2009 to the public. We've right. got the beta version of the website out at the moment. but It'll launch officially April 2009 and run for the snail, for that year's snail season. Excellent.
0: Emily Unell and Evolution Megalab Project Officer Jenny Worthington there. Unsurprisingly, the Open University offers a third-level course called Evolution. It's a wide-ranging course that sets out to explain the key concepts of evolutionary science, and it investigates how these account for the characteristics of living organisms and the history of life on Earth. Using information from the living world and the fossil record, students learn how natural selection and other evolutionary processes produce changes in genes and populations over different timescales. They also find out how new species originate and how large-scale evolutionary patterns are generated. Other topics covered in the course include the reconstruction of evolutionary relationships and the ways in which humans influence the evolution of other species. Evolution is a specified course in both our Life Sciences and Geosciences degrees. To find out more about the course, log on to www. three openacuk forward study. Click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page and follow the appropriate links. Well, that's the end of this particular Takeaway Science podcast brought to you by Blast at the Open University. For other podcasts in this series, revisit the Open University Science Faculty website at open.ac.uk science. And if you want to find out more about some of the science outreach work carried out by the OU, visit the BLAST webpages at blast.open.ac.uk. Well, that's all for now. So from me, Mike Bullivant, once again, adios amigos.